We saw last week the rejection at Nazareth. And in a nutshell, Jesus was rejected by men so that we could be accepted by God. And at this point, Luke starts to lay out the miracles in his gospel. Verse 31. Then he went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and was teaching them on the Sabbaths. So if we look at a map, some of us know the geography of the area. Normally we think of down to as south. So if we go to Florida, we say, well, I'm going down to Florida. That's the way we look at things as Americans. But here, if you look at the trek from Nazareth to Capernaum, it's northeast. Now, the discrepancy is cleared up easily when you think about terms of elevation. Nazareth was more of a hilly area. It was a higher elevation. And going down to Capernaum was a lower elevation. It was a fishing town by the water, the Sea of Galilee. 32. And they were astonished at his teaching, for his word was with authority. His teaching was astonishing and authoritative. Authority. Jesus is the word of God. John 1.1 tells us that. He did what came naturally as God's mouthpiece. And astonishing. We also know that God's words are powerful. Let's turn to 2 Timothy 3:16 through 17. Paul says, All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. So all scripture, God's words, are really breathed on to these pages. Yes, men wrote them. But the Holy Spirit led these men to write these words. And you can see all the things that it does, all the things that the word of God is able to do. The people then kind of strayed a little bit from the word of God. Uh, in the synagogues, they, a lot of rabbinical commentaries were taught. People started focusing more on tradition than the word of God. But when Jesus came, he corrected that. He put God's word back to where it belongs, back to its rightful position above everything else. As Christians, we're supposed to follow the example that Jesus set and propagate God's word with authority. Be proud to speak his word. I remember I was doing a memorial for 9-11, and I went to speak, and it, just, it was, it was uh, intimidating. It was outside. There was a lot of noise. It was uh, a lot of vehicles, uh, a thousand people. And I remember kind of being a little timid, and somebody said to me, speak it loud and speak it proud. Speak God's word with authority. That's what we're supposed to do. Two traps churches can fall into. One is having no enthusiasm or love for the word. Pastor's just earning a paycheck. People just come in to feel good on Sunday and then go home. Mark 122 adds to this. Mark 122 says that Jesus spoke with authority, not as the scribes. The scribes were the established part of the religious system at the time. These guys knew the word inside and out, but they didn't speak with authority anymore. When Jesus came, he spoke. He brought that authority for the word of God. And another thing is some people have plenty of enthusiasm or overemphasis on pet doctrines, but there's no meat to the word. I remember a few years back I was working in staff at Calvary Old Bridge, and a woman called up with major spiritual problems. She had gone to a church that kind of just focused on one thing for 10 years. And over the phone I was leading her through different scriptures, and she was like, well, I never saw that before. I never saw that before. Now, we're not talking about... Uh, are we amillennialist or postmillennialist? It was something like spiritual warfare. If you've been going to a church for 10 years, for 10 years, you should know the word. That's why we do the verse-by-verse -verse teachings. So if you stay with us long enough, you'll get the whole Bible. You'll get an understanding of the, whole, the entire Bible. An authority for the word. I think of a story 
uh, Marty talked about Marty before. He, he used to coach men's football for years. And uh, he told me about this guy that I, that I should meet because he had some biblical questions. Now, when I did meet this man, he was literally three times my size. He was a very big man. And Marty would tell me that he was an animal on the field, on the football field, and his nickname, the first part of his nickname was crazy, and then his name. So I'm thinking, I'm not so sure I really want to meet this guy, you know? Kind of put off the meeting for a while. But eventually he brought him into the station, I was working, and me, Marty, and this guy go into this kind of a small room, we start talking. I'm thinking he's going to ask me some questions and I'm going to help him understand the truths of the Bible. Well, he just starts saying a hodgepodge of different religions, and some of the stuff he said was outright heresy. Uh, and I really couldn't get a word in edgewise. Now, the spirit in me said, say something, speak up, defend the word of God. But the self-preservation part of me said, shut up, nod, and smile, and let him talk. But he kept talking and talking, and eventually I said, I just can't take it anymore. So I said, brother, stop, stop, listen, let's start from here. And I started correcting him and, you know, teaching the word of God. So I told him the truth, and then he just stopped, and he stared at me for a minute. I thought, "Uh uh-oh. And then Marty looked at me as if to say, Joe, if this guy jumps on you, I don't know if I can save you. This guy was big. I I figured he could just take off all my limbs and beat me with my own limbs. And if I had to shoot him, I better do it now. But after a a moment of silence, he, he just looked at me, and he reached out his big hands and took my hand, and he said, thank you. That was awesome. That was awesome. And from then on, he called me preacher man. It was a sigh of relief. But I spoke with authority, you know. I mean, that, that time it worked out well, but it doesn't always work out well. And that shouldn't be our indicator, is if we think things are going to go well or not. We're supposed to speak the word regardless of the outcome. Verse 33. It says, Now in the synagogue there was a man who had a spirit of an unclean demon. And he cried out with a loud voice, saying, Let us alone. What have we to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Did you come to destroy us? I know you. You are the Holy One of God. Do you ever wonder what this, this man with a demon was doing in the synagogue? Well, it's Satan's job to destroy. Jesus tells us that in John 10. And what better way to destroy than hang out in the enemy's camp and spy on us, right? I uh, read to you a few Sundays ago some excerpts from the screw tape letters, C.S. Lewis. And it's basically a fictitious account of demons speaking to each other of how they could infiltrate God's kingdom and take Christians and bring them back down to, you know, to damnation. Uh, It's kind of a look from the other side. But that's what Satan does. He hangs out in the enemy's camp. Now, as a matter of fact, Paul's biggest concern when he left was destruction from within. Let's turn to Acts 20, 27 through 31. Paul says, For I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God, Therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you. That's from the inside. Not sparing the flock. Also from among yourselves, men will rise up, speaking perverse things, to draw away the disciples after themselves. In every church that's dedicated to teaching the word of God, Satan will move to cause division, strife, and destruction. You can count on that. Now, I don't want you to look at somebody else and kind of look suspiciously and come after church and say, Pastor Joe, the guy sitting next to me had shifty eyes. (laughs) But it's going to happen. That's what Satan does. He comes to destroy. In verse 34, the demon says something interesting. I know you. 
he says to Jesus. In James 2.19, James says, uh, you believe there is one God, you do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. So what does it say about mere mental assent to Jesus Christ? What does it say about that? Really not much. Um, you know, we've seen, it's like, yeah, I know who Jesus is. I've seen the paintings. You know, he's got blonde hair and blue eyes and Jesus kind of looks Irish. Yeah, I know who Jesus is. That's not what it's all about. It's about a relationship. I want to read Matthew 7, 21 through 23. Jesus says this, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. So people can give an appearance of being Christian. There's an appearance there. We talked about the seeds and how they spring up. And certain things destroy those seeds, like the cares of this world. But he goes on to say this in 24. Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain descended, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house. And it did not fall, for it was founded on the rock. Now everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain descended, the floods came, the winds blew and beat on that house, and it fell. And great was its fall. So we see that our relationship with Jesus, Jesus is our foundation. If we're building our house, so to speak, on the foundation of Christ, no matter what comes our way, we will weather those storms. But our, our foundation is not on Jesus Christ. Whatever we build just comes to nothing. There was a guy that I grew up with a few years younger than me. Uh, he moved to Italy. I might see him maybe once a year. And he read the Bible from Genesis to Revelation as an intellectual exercise, just to read the Bible. The guy could quote scripture. because He had a very good memory. But he was completely unmoved. Imagine that. Reading the scripture all the way through, and it, it doesn't sink into your heart. It's like he hardened his heart. And some people can intellectually know of the gospel, but harden their hearts to its saving power. 1 Corinthians 1.18 says that the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to we who are being saved, it is the power of God. Somebody who's perishing, ah, the Bible, it's just another book. They're perishing. And the message of the cross is foolishness. Some, Jesus died on the cross for my sins. I'm a pretty good guy compared to the rest of society. That's ridiculous. It's foolishness to them. But to we who are being saved, it is the power of God. Some under the auspices of being ministers of the gospel will use and abuse the gospel to get whatever they can out of it, but not have that relationship with God. They'll give that appearance. Some will sprout up like the seeds that I spoke about before in the parable of the sower. But the gospel doesn't take root in their heart, and eventually they fall away. So the question is, do you know Jesus Christ? Do you know Jesus Christ more than the demons knew Jesus Christ? Sure, they knew Jesus Christ. And in James the demons believe that there is one God, but they're still going to hell. So do we believe in Jesus? Do we have that relationship with him? And if not, do we want to? And how bad do you want that relationship with him? At the end of the service, we always give an opportunity for those who want to receive Jesus as their Lord and Savior to do so. But something else the demon said was, have you come to destroy us? Now, I've said this before. The underworld knows the Bible better than we do. They've had thousands of years to study God's word to try to manipulate it and to use it against us, right? 
But nobody knows the time period that the events will happen in, because God knows man. We're filled with loopholes. Um, and, and the demons know that their demise is unavoidable. If you read Revelation 20.10, you'll see that. But we don't know when. Verse 35. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be quiet and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him in their midst, it came out of him and did not hurt him. Why did Jesus shut up the demons from continuing to speak? What was his reason? What, were his, what was his motivation from shutting them up? You would think Jesus, the, the demons were kind of doing him a favor. You're the Holy One of God. You're the Messiah. He wanted them to be quiet, and he commanded them to be quiet. Well, probably the same reason why he said to Mary at the wedding feast when, when the, the wine ran out, and Mary said, what are we going to do about this? And Jesus said, woman, my time has not come yet. And for the same reason in John 6:15 that the people marveled at Jesus, the crowds pressed against him, and they tried to take him by force to make him a king. Imagine that. There was a portion of scripture where the, the, the crowd said, this is the one. He's our Messiah, and they tried to take him by force to make him prop him up as their king. And he, he withdrew from them because it wasn't his time yet. So it's, it's, there's a biblical time for the presentation of the Messiah. Let's turn back to the Old Testament, read one verse, Daniel chapter 9, verse 25. Daniel chapter 9, verse 25. This is a situation where Gabriel the angel comes to Daniel and gives him a revelation about things to come. And it says specifically... Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until the Messiah, the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and sixty-two weeks. The street shall be built again and the wall even in troublesome times. So this is a picture where, remember, in 586 B.C., the Babylonians invaded uh, Jerusalem. They destroyed it and they took a lot of the Jewish people captive and brought them back to Babylon. Sometime, 70 years passed, and the Persians came. They beat up the Babylonians, and they took over. There was the Persian, the Medo-Persian domination. Now, under the Persian domination, they allowed the Jews to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild, to start all over again. Okay? So that's what he's referring to here. He's kind of consoling Daniel and explaining to him that there will be a future time where your people will not be in captivity. They'll be sent back. And then he goes on to throw in something else about the Messiah, and the Messiah is coming too. The Messiah is a central theme about Jewish life. If you look at the prophets, there's over 300 prophecies about the Messiah. So it was focused, it was focal to their, uh, their culture. Now, what happened was, from the time, somebody did the calculations, from the time that the Persian decree was given to let the Jews go back to Jerusalem and rebuild, to the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem in Luke 19. That was his time. There was a period of these weeks that are explained here. So Jesus knew the exact time that he was supposed to present himself as the Messiah to the Jewish people. And he would not do that before the the appointed time. And the 69 weeks, basically, the word week in Hebrew is Shabuah, which really means a seven. But it's really a period of seven years, much like our word decade really means ten but we understand a decade to be 10 years. So when you do the math, you have basically 483 of their years, during, according to their calendar, from the, the Persian decree to go back to Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince would, would present himself. That's why nobody now could claim to be the Messiah, because God knew that people would try to um, be charlatans and try to pretend to be the Messiah. Uh, if you read Genesis 49.10, if you're taking notes, 
and Haggai 2.7. Genesis 49.10 has to do with the political situation at the time. That it was time sensitive, that the Messiah would come. Haggai 2.7 has to do with the desire of all nations, which was the, an idiom for the Messiah to be presented himself in the temple. Now, the temple hasn't been around for close to 2,000 years, so nobody can present themselves now as the Messiah. So it's interesting to look at. There's, again, we see history in, in frames. It, time marches on. And there was a window of time in human history when the Messiah could present himself. That window has come, and that window has gone. So, Jesus didn't want, also, another reason why he didn't want uh, his Messiahship to be known just then, but because he didn't want the people to overfocus on a conquering Messiah. It wasn't his mission the first time. The scriptures are divided. Some scriptures speak about the Messiah coming as a lion, as a great conqueror. And of course, if you're living under the Roman domination, you're thinking, that's a great thing, because these Romans, we've had about enough of them. But they didn't focus on the suffering servant, Isaiah 53, the Psalm of the Cross, Psalm 22, the rejection by the friends. You know, all these scriptures where the Messiah would be rejected, they kind of blotted that out of their mind. But that's what Jesus was supposed to come as the first time. And that would have caused, again, if this overemphasis on a conquering Messiah at that particular time would have caused rejection and stumbling over the crucifixion concept. And we even see Jesus' closest confidants had a, a very difficult time with the crucifixion as it was. So that was your other reason. In verse 36 in Luke 4, it says, So all were amazed and spoke among themselves, saying, What a word this is, for with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. And the report of him went out into every place and into the surrounding region. Casting out demons, sometimes a little bit of a controversial subject, but basically it was one of the signs that followed those who believe. One of the signs of, of following those who believe is casting out demons. Mark 16:17 records that. Um, I used to like those scary movies. I don't know why I would watch them, because then I would watch them and I couldn't fall asleep at night. But when The Exorcist came out, everybody watched The Exorcist. People talked about that for years. But it's interesting, looking back, Hollywood's anti-God slant made the demonic forces look so much more powerful, if not equal, to the forces of God, the power of God, which wasn't true. But what does the Bible say about God and the powers of the demonic forces? Well, let's look at Luke 10:17. It says, now this is a portion of scripture where Jesus sends out 70 disciples, two by two, to the surrounding regions to preach the gospel, to to be disciples. And it says, verse 17 says, The 70 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. Totally different picture than what you would see in the movies, isn't it? They returned with joy and disbelief. Jesus, Jesus, there was this guy, and he was foaming at the mouth, and, and I said, by the power of God, the name of Jesus, come out of that man. And he did. No, no, Jesus, Jesus, I got a story too. This guy was rabid. He was running around on all fours. He looked like he was going to bite people. And I put my hand on him and, and, and the demons came out of him. They came with joy. They were blown away that they had the power over the demonic realm where people were oppressed by the demonic realm for so many years. So verse 18 through 20, and Jesus has to kind of reel them back in. Hey, guys, okay, get a grip, you know, get a hold of yourselves. Verse 18, he says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I give you authority to trample on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. 
Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. They, they totally lost focus of the mission. It was cool that they could cast out demons. It's cool that 1 John 4, 4 says that a Christian can never be demon-possessed. How could, how could Satan live with you, with the Holy Spirit inside of you? It can't happen. But Jesus said, guys, focus, bring it back, you know. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. That was, that was the point. Don't get caught up on this side issue. Go preach the gospel. Do what you need to do. So uh, a pastor friend of, of mine said, he said, whenever I have to deal with uh, possible possibility of demonic oppression, he goes, I don't focus on the demons. I focus on Jesus. And the more I focus on Jesus, the demons don't want to be there. It's very uncomfortable for them. So Hollywood versus the Bible, <laughs> exorcism, very, it's there in a nutshell. Uh, we're going to switch gears here now to another miracle also recorded by Matthew and Mark, uh, the healing of, of Simon's mother-in-law. Simon is also Simon Peter, and Peter was one of the 12 disciples. Now, there's a lot of tradition and folklore surrounding Peter, as there was with Mary. Well, let's read what the, the tradition says about Peter, and let's see if, that, if it stands the test of the Scripture. few things about Peter. In A.D. 610, uh, the papacy was instituted. The title Pope was used as a universal bishop. It was first given to the Bishop of Rome by the Emperor Phocas, again in 610 A.D. So the Bible was written. It was sealed. We believe that the latest date for the last portion of Scripture was right around 90 A.D. And over 500 years later, Somebody introduces the title of, of Pope, this, this high leader. Okay? Another thing was in 1079 A.D., many, many years after that, uh, the celibacy of the priesthood was decreed by Pope Hildebrand Boniface VII in the year 1079 A.D. So you have the celibacy there uh, of the priesthood. And then one other thing I want to focus on is, now this is 1870, actually not that long ago. Pope Pius IX proclaimed the dogma of papal infallibility in 1870. So, not long ago, it was decreed, many hundreds, many centuries, a few thousand years after the scripture was already written, hey, these guys are infallible. Okay, well, how does that stand the test of time with God's word? Let's read verse 38. Now, he arose from the synagogue and entered Simon's house. But Simon's wife's mother was sick with a high fever. And they made request of him concerning her. So we see that Peter was married. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about that. Peter was a married man. Further proof, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9.5, Paul says this, Do we have no right to take along a believing wife, as do also the other apostles, the brothers of the Lord, and Cephas? Cephas was the Aramaic name for Kephas, which is the Greek name for Peter, for Simon Peter. Um, the word Peter, Peter means a stone. Now, not the bedrock that the church is built on. In Matthew 16, which we will get to at some point, uh, there's a word for the rock that the church is built on. And that word is Petra. That's the rock bed. The rock was always known as God. And in the New Testament, Jesus took that name as the rock. Um, no man can take that name. But Peter was known as, as a stone. As a matter of fact, Peter says himself in the book of First Peter that he's a fellow elder and he's a fellow stone in the spiritual household. 
So Peter's a humble man. He didn't elevate himself above anybody else. And in Galatians 2, Peter actually made an error in judgment concerning spiritual matters to the point that Paul had to rebuke him. Read Galatians 2.11. Paul said, I, had to withst- I withstood Peter to his face because he had played the hypocrite regarding spiritual matters. So God's word will always discount any tradition that man can make up over the year. But Paul states in 1 Corinthians 9.5 that Peter was married, and Paul could follow suit too if he so desired. And it should put our, eyes at, at, or put our minds at ease knowing that a man of God can be married. It's normal, it's healthy, and it should happen for a man of God to be married. 39. So he stood over her, Jesus stands over Peter's mother-in-law, and rebuked the fever, and it left her. And immediately she arose and served them. Now the Greek word used for fever is synonymous with fire. So this was no average flu that Peter's mother-in-law had that, Peter, or that Jesus healed. History tells us that malaria-type fevers were common in that region because of the marshes, the marshy areas that bred mosquitoes. So it was a common thing for people to get these diseases. And this is a pretty serious illness that Jesus cured. It wasn't like he gave her some Tylenols and sent her to bed and gave her some bed rest. As you can see, it's a pretty miraculous thing that he does here. Now, just a little bit to take a sidebar, and there's a reason for this, talk about the human body and how it fights infections. A precursor to a fever is usually a microbial infection. It's an attack on body that precipitates the response from the immune system. The immune system kicks into gear. There's a a class of white blood cells called the lymphocytes, which activate the B cells and the T cells. It's pretty, pretty intricate. The B cells make antibodies, tag invaders, and mark them for destruction. The T cells are killer cells. Their job is to kill infected cells. Then you have other cells called phagocytes that their job is to go around the body gobbling up pathogens. Remember years ago, one of the first video games, remember Pac-Man? Waka, 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 waka. Remember that? I'm not going to do that again, so... It's the phagocyte's job to actually search the body looking for pathogens and gobble them up and kill them. The hypothalamus uh, is is located in the brain. It purposely raises the body temperature to denature uh, up to a feverish level. The body purposely brings the temperature up to a certain level, and then for the most part it stabilizes it. You have to watch children, of course, because their bodies aren't completely developed. But in adults, you'll usually go to maybe 103, 104, and then it'll stop. The body knows to stop. It's purposely giving you a fever. The increased temperature is designed to denature the pathogens and to speed up the immune response. Your thymus kicks in, your bone marrow, your lymph system, and many others. And this is only a small snippet of the uh, immune response, okay, regarding a pathogen invading your body. But the reason why I want to focus on this is two things. Well, number one, if you look at the immune response, the brain, the heart, the eye, I mean, we could talk about the intricacies all day long. If you ever take a biology class, it'll blow you away, what happens on the cellular level. So I guess the first thing I want to uh, bring up is that it kind of blows me away that over millions of years, this all happened by accident. And the second thing that I want to bring up, I say that facetiously, of course, is that when your body is invaded on the cellular level, there's literally a war fought inside of you with many cellular casualties. And when the body heals, it can take weeks for the, the body to fully repair and for you to regain strength. That's why, what do they call that, a rebound infection? If you think you're feeling better the next day and you start doing stuff, then you get sick again, and sometimes it's worse, because your body's not completely healed at the cellular level, and you're not giving it a chance. But here, the fever is cleared up immediately, the Bible says, and healing and strengthening happen as well, like it never happened. She just gets up and she starts serving them. 
But what kind of blows me away is what is the first thing that she does? I just said it. She gets up and she starts serving everybody who's there. She's fine. Gratefulness and service. Kind of dying arts in our society. Uh, dying to self is, can be definitely dead in our society as a whole. But Jesus changes our life, not so that we can focus on ourselves, but to serve God and others. I was in the prayer meeting this morning with the ushers, and one of the ushers said that part of his prayer was, Lord, help us not to focus on ourselves. Help us to focus on other people. These guys are out there to try to attend to the people who are coming here to serve you guys, to set up and to break down. And we have so many servants here. It's like, I think it's up to, gee, a third of our, the body here are servants in some way. So the prayer was, Lord, help us not to focus on ourselves. And you know what? That goes against our nature because we're kind of prone to think about ourselves. And the interesting thing is, uh, in our society, people get pretty down when they overfocus on themselves. Uh, a friend of ours, uh, years back, don't worry, it's nobody here. I try not to mention names either, unless it's something good. But a friend of ours was overfocused on themselves. And I remember one particular phone call years ago that I'll never forget. The person called, and my wife answered the phone and said, Hi, Heather, listen, I didn't call to see how you are. I just want to talk about my problems, and I just want you to listen. What, what an introduction, huh? Talk about focusing on yourself. But this person, it's no surprise, for years didn't come out of their rut. They were in a rut. It was a self-focused rut. All they could think about was themselves. But by contrast, I've known people in my life who have had cancer, really good, godly people who you wouldn't know they had cancer unless you asked them. They focused on you. How are you doing? There's a difference, like conversation is this, you know, you meet somebody and you say, how you doing? My name is Joe. Um, you know, I'm six foot tall. I weigh this much. And this is what I do for a living. And you just talk about yourself. Would that person want to be around you? When you meet somebody, isn't it cool when they introduce themselves to you and say, hey, how you doing? You married? You got kids? Hey, what do you do for a living? You know, you, you focus on the other person and they in turn focus on you. And what happens is that develops a relationship, right? So the point is that we shouldn't focus on ourselves. Um, verse 40. It says, now when the sun was setting, all those who had anyone sick with various diseases brought them to him. And he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. So everyone came to Jesus to be healed. And I'm sure he was tired at many times. As a matter of fact, the Bible records, a portion of scripture records, a time where Jesus was on the boat with his disciples. And there was a terrible storm. But he's, he's sawing wood. He's sleeping. And they had to wake him up. Master, master, do you realize we're perishing? So, no doubt, with all the ministering he did, he was tired. Being fully God and fully man, as a man, his body needed rest. So, but even though all the, the tiredness that he had, he still focused on other people before he focused on himself. He was our example. 41. And the demons also came out of many, crying out and saying, You are the Christ, the Son of God. And he rebuking them did not allow them to speak, for they knew that he was the Christ. Now, when it was day... He departed and went into a deserted place, and the crowd sought him and came to him and tried to keep him from leaving them. Mark 135, a parallel scripture, Mark 135, gives more detail and then said that Jesus retreated to a solitary place to pray. It's very good to pray corporately. We do that a lot. But I can't stress enough individual prayer with the Father in heaven. That is so needed. It's kind of a way that we recharge our spiritual batteries to have that alone time with God is very important. And Jesus set that example. I know some of you have, I've heard people tell me accounts of they would wake up at like one in the morning, 
for no reason. And it's like God put somebody on their heart to pray for. So they were obedient and they prayed and then they went back to sleep. And then they found out sometime later that that person went to the hospital. It's like God uses us to minister to others. That's the way he designed us to, to be the body of Christ. We're all knit together here. So God will do that. He'll, he'll kind of get your attention and have you pray for somebody else. It's kind of like, I think, of the old episodes of the Batman episodes. Remember the Bat Phone? Remember Commissioner Gordon? It's like the cops were just sitting around and had nothing to do to wait for that Bat Phone to ring. But anyway, you know, when that Bat Phone lit up, they, it, it was important. No matter what they were doing, they had to put, drop everything and pick up that Bat Phone. It's kind of the same thing with God. We know God has designed us to, so he could communicate with us. And there's times that he's trying to get our attention. And like the Bat Phone, we've got to put everything aside and respond to his calling. 43. But he said to them, I must preach the kingdom of God to the other cities also, because for this purpose I have been sent. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Galilee. So our job is to preach the kingdom of heaven also. Our job is to imitate Christ. He's our Savior. 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, Paul says this. Paul says, to, he says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Now, the word for imitate in the Greek is mimetai, which is where we get the word mimic. Mimic me. What I do, do. You know, follow what I'm doing. And any disciple that you make is, if you're hopefully walking with the Lord, try not to be a disciple if you're doing bad stuff or disciple people. But you want people to imitate what you do. When times get tough, you go to prayer. You, you, you're, you're, you're regular in the word. You build the relationships in your family. I mean, you, know, you, you help people. You show yourself as an example to people around you of what a Christian is supposed to be. So we're to imitate. We're supposed to imitate Christ. You ever hear that expression? And I hear people say, too, um, don't be so heavenly minded that you're no earthly good. You've heard that expression, right? Well, that's an absurd expression, because the only way to be earthly good is to be heavenly minded. That's the converse of it. Um, the only way to make a difference here is to be heavenly minded. Unfortunately, that expression is a good excuse for people to be worldly and to have a lukewarm faith. And we see in Revelation that Jesus talks to the church of Laodicea. They had a lukewarm faith. And he said, you know, you're not cold or hot for me. You're lukewarm. And because you're lukewarm, I'll vomit you out of my mouth. I have no use for you. A, a Christian who, who's riding the fence and can't make a decision is just as good as not being a Christian at all, especially for the kingdom of heaven. You know, and, and don't get me wrong. When I was a new Christian, I had a, you, know, you, you don't want to be rejected. Your coworkers, your family, your friends, they think you're weird now. Oh, you're too good for us. You know, they say all kinds of different things to make you feel bad. But... And, and, and as you start going on in that journey, you get stronger in your faith. And once you're solidified in that faith, that's the time to take the jump. To take the jump. Take both feet and plunge it in. You know, you're a Christian now. Be proud of that. Uh, especially as Christians, we shouldn't have deep roots in this world. It's just temporary. The world can turn quickly on you. Now, every once in a while, I like to do a show of hands to make sure people aren't nodding off and thinking about that cake that's in the lobby. So by a show of hands, I just want to ask everyone... Uh, how many of you ever went to the doctor or the hospital because something on your body malfunctioned? Pretty much all of you, <laughs> unless you're really young. But then you were born in a hospital, probably. How many of you had someone turn on you that you really trusted? We talked about this last Sunday. Wow, a lot of people, huh? Uh, how many of you know someone that died? Survey says 10 out of 10 people die unless the rapture comes first. How many of you got a speeding ticket? No, I'm just kidding. I don't want to know. <laughs> 
But the good news is that there's hope in Christ. I like to give the bad news first so the good news seems really good because the good news is really good. It's like we're happy to have light because we open our eyes, we can see our spouses, we can um, look at the beauty that God's created. We don't have to bump into things in the dark, right? Light is a good thing. But if all you ever knew was light and you never knew darkness, how good would you know that light is? Not very well because it's, it's an abstract concept. To know something really bad... And then to know something really good, it really, really helps you understand how good something really good is. As a matter of fact, preacher Ray Comfort is very effective in leading people to Christ after showing them their hopeless condition and their separation from God via the Ten Commandments. He's very effective. So Jesus healed all who came to him. So as we start to see this portion of Scripture where Jesus heals people, do you ever wonder how many hundreds, how many thousands... How many ten thousands of people were healed by Jesus in the time that he was on the earth? Remember, we saw last time that Jesus did a lot of remote healings. He could say a word here in South Brunswick and Jerusalem, somebody would be healed. His power was immense. A lot of people were healed by him. But where was their loyalty to him when he was led to the crucifixion? What happened to all those people saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, right? What happened to all those people? Oh, thank you, Lord Jesus, for healing me, for healing my son. He disappeared. Why didn't they continue to identify with him? Was it not second nature to them? And is it second nature to us as a Christian? Is, is it a second nature thing? I'll give you a story about second nature. Uh, Wednesday night at the Bible study, I'm driving home. And I'm on the cell phone, of course hands-free because I want to do everything legal, right? <laughs> I'm talking with a brother in the fellowship and we're just chatting away and I'm driving late. And uh, I said, bro, i got to call you back. I said, there's a guy in front of me in a big vehicle who's going into oncoming traffic. I think he's drunk. Let me get off the phone with you. So I'm driving more and more, and I see that he almost hit a few people. He crosses the double yellow, right, a few times. So I got on the phone with the local police department. I talked to the dispatcher. I said, I identify myself as a police officer. I said, listen, I'm following this vehicle. This is the color of the vehicle. This is the plate. He's turning left on this road. And I'm talking to the dispatcher as if I'm in the patrol car again, like, you know, flashbacks. So I'm talking to the dispatcher, I'm giving the locations as if I have the police radio in my hand and I'm driving my squad car. You know, and we're going around these different streets and they're trying to get the cops to come because he's going down all these country roads. I think he was trying to lose me. I think he caught on to me. But um, so what happens is uh, finally the cops catch up to where I am and I wave them on. One, one squad car comes first, passes me up, pulls the guy over. And there's just one car so far. So I got out with him kind of as his backup. I know my wife loves to hear that. So I get out as if I'm on duty and approach the vehicle and uh, find out the guy's totally drunk. The, the cop comes back and he goes, hey, man, brother, thanks a lot. The guy's really drunk. And he ends up getting arrested. He gets arrested, okay, for drunk driving. Uh, but you know what's interesting? I'm a cop so long that it becomes my identity. Being a cop is kind of a weird job. You become the job after a while. But it becomes my identity. Now, where I'm going with this is, have you put in enough time with your Heavenly Father that being a Christian is your identity. That if times are bad, you don't go, gee, what am I going to do? You turn to prayer because you're a Christian. You identify that. As a Christian, do you wear that as your badge of honor? I'm a Christian. Do you go to the Word of God when you, when you have problems and you need wisdom? I'm a Christian. I go to the Word of God. It's my identity. So after a few, people, a few minutes of somebody talking to you, will they know that there's something different about you? You ever hear somebody says to you, 
There's something, something about you. There's something different. You tell me you're, you're a Christian. Like, oh, I knew there was something different about you. Do you, do you emanate that, 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 that you're a, a child of God to other people? And if the answer is no to these questions, it's definitely something to consider.